Stay tuned at the end of the episode for a special offer for Review Systems listeners from the Harvard Center for Primary Care on an upcoming conference. Welcome to Review Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, healthcare policy, and more. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Have you ever felt lonely and overwhelmed in a clinic room with a patient whose needs are far beyond your skills and ability to meet? I have, and so has our guest this week, Dr. Lori Tischler. Dr. Tischler is the Vice President of Medical Affairs at Commonwealth Care Alliance, a not-for-profit organization that cares for more than 20,000 of the most vulnerable patients in Massachusetts, duals, or individuals who have both Medicare and Medicaid. We talk about how CCA's member-centered approach as opposed to a physician-centered approach, has helped her feel more effective in caring for these vulnerable patients. We talk about the range of services that CCA offers, the role of their care partners, and the freedom that their financial model permits. For example, they provide 90% of care to patients in their homes. Please check our website, www.rospod.org, for a full bio of Dr. Tischler, more information about CCA, and the Atlantic Magazine article we reference in our conversation. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us wherever you listen and share us with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for listening. Lori Tischler, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Can you describe Commonwealth Care Alliance for our listeners? What does your organization do? Sure. Commonwealth Care Alliance is a nonprofit that um, takes care of over 20,000 people who are dually eligible, and that means that they have both Medicare and Medicaid. And depending on the member, we take care of them sometimes from soup to nuts, meaning that we provide their primary care as well as care coordination. For other patients, we just provide their care coordination. And we're globally capitated so that we have a certain amount of money that is given to us up front um, by the state and the federal government based on the level of complexity or illness of our member. And we operate uh, within that budget. Okay. So there's a lot there. So duly eligible folks are either seniors who live in poverty, so they are eligible for both Medicare by age and Medicaid because of their low income. And then That's correct. And then other duals are disabled. That's right. And disability for our younger patients, um, we take care of them in a program called One Care. Okay. And they are disabled in many ways. We have many patients who are severely physically disabled um, and others who may be psychiatrically disabled or have a combination of both. Okay. And you were saying that there are some patients you take care of soup to nuts, and I believe that those patients you're referencing are patients you care for in Commonwealth Community Care, which is your clinical affiliate. I believe you have four clinics somewhere in different locations around the state of Massachusetts where you both ensure and actually provide care for for those patients. So the nurse practitioners and NPs and PAs who, who man those clinics work for Commonwealth Care Alliance and the patients are actually insured by Commonwealth Care Alliance. 
That's right. So uh, those patients in Commonwealth Community Care not only have a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant who um, helps provide care for them, but they also have their primary care physician who's employed by Commonwealth Community Care or Commonwealth Care Alliance. So when I see when I see patients, I see patients um, who are part of of CCC Commonwealth Community Care. Okay. And and our Boston our Boston group was um, came out of something called the Boston Community Medical Group, which was founded by um, doctors Marie Felton and Bob Masters, and that was really the very beginning of CCA. Um, they really focused on taking care of severely disabled. Um, adults who, many of whom would have essentially been forced to be institutionalized uh, for their level, for their need for care prior to um, the development of, of Boston Community Medical Group. And it gelled with the development of a movement in the United States called the Independent Living Movement, which was essentially kind of a, a liberation movement for people who were severely physically disabled mm-hmm. who really wanted to be able to direct their own care, to live at home, and to have more to say about their needs and their quality of life. Okay. The majority of your patients, so you, as you say, you just provide insurance and care coordination for, but they're cared for by a physician in the community. So in the past, I've had patients in my clinic, just I see like any other patient who are, who are mm-hmm. covered by CCA. Okay. That's right. But each, each of those patients and the primary care doctor doesn't always, I think, isn't always aware, um, although many are, each of those um, patients that you might see also has what we call a care partner, right. meaning that somewhere along the way, regardless of their level of illness or care, they are attached to a person through Commonwealth Care Alliance who who may um, enhance the primary care that you were providing by letting you know about things because they're able to see members in the community. And then for some of our members who really have a hard time um, getting to the doctor, either because of their physical disabilities or, or the fact that their lives are often very chaotic, for many of those members, the, some of the, sometimes the care partner really provides a fair amount of care um, in conjunction, of course, with the community physician. Okay. So, yeah, let's, let's talk about your care model a little bit more. You know, you have this kind of range of intensity of services, but it sounds like everybody is provided with a care partner. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the range of services and, you know, kind of how you decide what a particular member needs? Everybody regardless, as I said, of how much they need, does have a care partner. And Mm -hmm. unlike many care management organizations, um, people don't graduate here from their care partner. We um, keep them so that they always have somebody. And we have a proprietary stratification model that helps us think about people's social needs and physical needs so that we can decide what kind of care partner is best for them, Um, whether it's somebody who would interact with them mainly on the phone or whether it was somebody who would interact with them by coming to visit them in their homes, um, whether their needs are primarily behavioral health-driven or um, more physical health-driven and 
sets. So we, we slot them into uh, whatever model is fits for them at the time, but, but um, one of the sort of nice things about being a small organization is that somebody knows every member, mm. and we're really able to think about what's working and what's, what could be improved, and we're always trying to improve and make, make things better um, for the members. Okay. So if they, if they landed in one spot and it was perfect for them for a while, but then their needs changed to be either greater or less, then we might, um, we might change their model or we might decide that they really had such an amazing relationship with their care partner that we weren't going to mess with it. Okay. What might a typical day be like for a care partner and what is their background typically? Are they clinically trained and a lot of other organizations are experimenting with this idea of accompaniment and having very close relationships with patients. At Oyora, they call them health coaches. Camden Coalition, they talk about their you know, authentic healing relationships that they have. I guess you could call it more of a community health worker model. Is that the analog of the care partner? And what, what do they I do? Think, um, for the most part, most of our care partners are various types of licensed clinicians. Mm-hmm. So they may have some more training than, than a community health worker. We do also have what we call, um, we call our community health workers um, HOWs, mm-hmm. um, which, and, and they uh, are, are a large part of our model for people who have as care partners in for a certain number of patients and then also as experts particularly for housing and other kind of social need related issues but I, you know i could think about one of the care partners that i worked with who cares for one of my patients with me um, and her typical day i was just thinking about a day that she spent actually she spent the whole day with my patient um, this was a woman who had significant medical issues and also hadn't left her house in a very long time mm. and so she was fearful of leaving her house to get the specialist care that she needed. And so the care partner was actually able to meet her at her home and ride with her to the hospital and stay with her for the specialist appointment. Hmm. While that doesn't happen every day, that kind of attention is not unusual. We had another member who was nearing the end of life and the um that member's care partner knew that the member wanted to die at home and spent four hours in the hospital arranging uh, to have appropriate palliative care at home, and then went home with the member and stayed with him um, until he was settled, and then got up the next morning having decided in the middle of the night that the member had the wrong kind of tubing for something <laughs> to fix that. Wow. And, and it's not uncommon that we hear stories like that. Um, so our, you know, our caregivers at the beginning of the day would, uh, would go through their membership lists. They'll have a certain number of appointments during the day, and then they'll also be doing other kinds of care coordination, um, sometimes from their car, sometimes <laughs> from one of our offices. What I think I may have neglected to mention is that probably 90% of our care is given in the home. Hmm. So, wow. so that they will often go see someone at home. Wow. 
And when I see patients, some of them I see at the practice, but many of them I will also go to their home. And it gives you a very different view of, of caring for somebody. Yeah. Um, and, and also, I think, helps us. Our patients have a lot of needs and a lot of social needs. But when you see them at home, you also get a really good sense of their, their strengths and the things that matter to them in their lives. Right. One lady last week I had talked to was a big gardener. And so part of the visit was showing me the garden. <laughs> it also means she's eating healthy fruits and vegetables. So, yeah. you know, that's exciting. CCA was one of many healthcare organizations that was featured in an article in the June edition of The Atlantic about models of Mm -hmm. care for high need patients. So for listeners, I'll link Mm -hmm. it on our website if you want to look at it. And the author wrote about how one of your major challenges is actually finding your patients because much of the population you serve is so socially isolated and marginalized, like this woman you just mentioned who is fearful of leaving her house and almost never did. So the article says that 43 of potential clients were considered, quote unquote, unreachable. (laughs) Can you talk about that challenge and how you guys have have addressed it? Yes, I think it's actually been really interesting because one thing that CCA does that I think is very different than anywhere I've ever worked um, is just incredible persistence. So there is the the usual kind of sleuthing. We'll get um, we'll get the name of a new member from from the state or whoever, and one of our one of our jobs is to find them so that we can do some care planning and assessment. Um, and so first of all, we have to make sure that they're living where they say they were living, which for many of our members they're just not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's a question of finding them. So we have people who are able to really persist um, in finding their addresses, their phone numbers, somebody who might know them. We had a member that somebody had to call 24 times to engage her. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, as an active clinician who definitely likes to think that I'm engaging to my patients, I don't think I ever would have persisted at that Mm -hmm. level. So a huge piece of it is persistence. And then the other piece is that we actually have a team that's designed to help find people, Um, whether that's with shoe leather or with computer keys. Um, So that helps us to find people. And then many, many of our patients um, are actually traumatized in some way by the health system. So it can take a long time um, to help develop uh, trust. And oftentimes, the community health workers are fabulous at that. We had um, a member in Worcester who we had tried to reach and tried to reach, and we couldn't find him. And uh, we knew that he was homeless, and one of our health outreach workers, who knew a lot about the Worcester community, was able to figure out where he was staying and, you know, went to see him a few times. I mean, this is sort of the equivalent of under a bridge. And he he didn't want to engage with us. He just had no interest in engaging with us. Um, and then ultimately, he was found to be in the hospital. And our health outreach worker went to see him in the hospital. And the member said, you know what, I'm really upset 
because I got taken away in the ambulance and I don't have my stuff. And if you think about it, he's homeless. Mm. And so his stuff is all he has in the whole world. Two days later, there's a note in our medical record from the health outreach worker that says, found members stuff. (laughs) And he did. He went and he found his stuff and he brought it to the member. And this was the beginning of engagement. Can I say that that member has perfect control of his diabetes and is taking his psychiatric medicines? Of course not. But, but he does call our health outreach worker, and he does engage in a way that he never had before. Right. Can you talk about your community paramedicine program? Yes. This is a really wonderful program that was, I guess, it was sort of our brainchild in conjunction um, with an ambulance company. And hmm. what we did was we got a waiver from the state to allow us to have paramedics do this work and then the paramedics were carefully trained so that they could go into the homes of our members and actually make some assessments so I think an example is helpful here which is I was on call one night and we had a member who didn't speak English who was quite elderly um, who really didn't want to go to the hospital but she didn't feel good and she was quite short of breath. And so we were able to send the community paramedic there and he was able to not only see the patient and examine her, um, but he could get an EKG and send it to me electronically. He discovered that the member had missed her medication, so he was able to find out where her medicine was and go through it, essentially doing a little bit of med reconciliation on the fly. We gave her her medication. We also gave her some IV Lasix because we were able to do that. And um, this was done while on the phone with me, with the member's uh, nurse practitioner and uh, an interpreter. And she was very clear. The member was extremely clear that she did not want to go to the hospital, but we were able to help her to feel better without having to go to the hospital. And while the program was not invented as an um, ER diversion program, it was really invented more as a way to help help kind of get people the care they need where they need it. Mm. We have found that about 89% of the people visited by the Mobile Integrated Health Program don't go to the hospital, mm. don't have to go to the emergency room. And on the flip side, sometimes we'll visit somebody and they sound they're incredibly sick and we want them to go to the emergency room. But sure. even then, what will happen is that the the paramedic, if they are able to that night, will actually, we, we call 911 because it's not, the community paramedicine service isn't a 911 service, mm-hmm. but the, the medic will actually give report to the 911 folks, and if it's possible that night, they follow the patient to the hospital. And the cost per member per month for patients who use went from $835 in 2015 to $536 in 2016, which is a reduction of 35%. Hmm. 
So let's talk about the financial side of things. Up front, you mentioned that you're a capitated model, so you get like a per member per month sum. Right. That's exactly right. There's a certain amount of money that comes from both from Medicare and then a certain that comes from MassHealth. Mm -hmm. And all of our care is given within that within that capitated amount and that means that we are for some of the things we you know are just in a a capitated way but say a patient came to see you then we would just pay you fee for service out of out of that capitation and it works actually i think one of the key things for us is making sure that we know sort of what level of care each person is from from the Medicare standpoint, and and both Medicare and Medicaid look at uh, patients different ways. You can have community well, you can have people who have Alzheimer's disease or chronic mental illness, for example, um, people who are nursing home certifiable. And what nursing home certifiable means is that the they would be eligible to live in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And of those members at Commonwealth Care Alliance, just a tiny percentage of them, maybe two or three percent of them do, okay. even though um, probably a majority of members that we take care of could. Hmm. And the significance of that designation is just that I imagine you get a larger capitated payment for those patients than a community well patient. Exactly, exactly. And then you have the freedom Um, to, you know, allocate funds. You can use it for the community paramedicine or... Exactly, in some really interesting ways. So community paramedicine, we can fund non-emergency transportation. So we have members who are um, struggling with sobriety or alcoholism. And if their care partner makes a determination that it's important that we transport them twice a week to, say, an AA meeting, Hmm. we're able to do that. And I think that makes a huge difference. Um, The other things that we can do if we see a member who has asthma or COPD, who's using the emergency room frequently in the middle of a hot, humid summer, we can actually authorize the purchase of a window unit air conditioner for them. Um, And all of those things, we realize, helps to decrease utilization and, and we believe increases quality of life. So... Those those things are kind of exciting. Yeah. So before this, you worked in a kind of much more traditional fee-for-service kind of clinic. What Mm -hmm. has the transition been like to a place where it seems like all of these rules that we're so used to, not questioning and just, you know, submitting our E3, E4 billing, (laughs) and that's all out the window? What has that been like? No, it's really interesting, actually. I, I think there are two things. One is that... Um, this is not a doctor-centered organization. Hmm. Um, it's a member-centered organization, so that's one thing. And then after the members come the care partners who are not physicians. So I think it's really made me think a lot about what is the role of the physician in giving care to complex members. But it has also allowed me to both see and participate in incredibly effective teams um, in the way that I think I had always wanted to do but could never quite get to because, and it wasn't for the lack of caring about the patients and trying so hard, but really the the alignment of, 
of goals. Like right. it makes a lot of sense for us to sit down um, as a practice or as a group for two hours and talk about a bunch of patients and what happens when they're in the hospital and how we're going to get them out of the hospital and that so-and-so hung up on the health outreach worker or whatever because because we're all kind of in this together with the member. Another thing that I, I really like um, about CCA is this concept that we have here, um, which we call the dignity of risk. Hmm. And it's helping, it's understanding that our patients, for the most part, are competent, and that competent people sometimes make bad decisions. <laughs> and we want to... We don't want them to make bad decisions. We want to help them to make good decisions. But we also understand that it's their decision and that sometimes that means they're going to choose to do something that we don't like um, or that we think is dangerous. And in other settings, I have seen um, physicians, nurses say, well, okay, fine, you know, you're going to walk out of the hospital, we're not going to give you your medications, or I can't take care of you if you continue to use drugs or something like this. And we don't do that here. So we, we do continue to take care of you if you continue to use drugs. We are still going to work really, really hard to try to get you to stop using drugs. But it, this idea that we don't give up on people, hmm. or maybe there's an elderly person who shouldn't probably be living by herself anymore, um, but she's competent and she understands what the risks are of falling down or something like that. And instead of saying, okay, you know, and kind of throwing up our hands, we're going to try to get as much help um, as she can get, as she will accept, so that she can be as safe as she can possibly be, given that she's not entirely safe, if that makes sense. So that's something that I'd, I'd understood in a very kind of intuitive way, but hadn't really put into words in the same way. And I like that. Another thing that I think is really nice about the CCA model is that for most physicians, any patient that we see here, if you looked at if you looked at your schedule for the day in Epic or ECW or whatever, and saw that patient's name, or you had never met them and you looked at their problem list, you would start to hyperventilate. I mean, they have, they are incredibly complex, both medically and behaviorally. Mm -hmm. And any number of these patients, if they came into my office, I would feel very helpless. These are the patients that I would wake up thinking about at three in the morning. Yeah, sure. What if so-and-so didn't get her medicine? Or what if she stopped taking her antipsychotics again? They're not as scary to take care of at CCA because we have our care partners with them who really know how to take care of them and engage this population. And we have expertise in things that, you know, when I think of specialties at CCA, I think of things like wound care and palliative care and behavioral health, things like that, so that we really are able to help them as much as possible. And it doesn't feel as lonely to be a clinician when you have so much support. Yeah, yeah. I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm we sure all know that feeling. And yeah. that you want, to, you want to be able to do better by someone. Yeah. And as I was thinking about my 
own career trajectory, I knew that I wanted to learn more about innovative health systems and to take better care of re really vulnerable populations. And, you know, we're certainly not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but that's what we're trying to do. Okay. Lori Tischler, thank you so much for your time. You are so welcome. You've been listening to Review of Systems. I'm Audrey Provenzano. You can find links to the Atlantic article we mentioned, as well as many others about CCA's approach to caring for vulnerable patients on our website, www.rospod.org, as well as more information about Dr. Tischler. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen. Tweet us your thoughts at ROS Podcast and leave a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash review systems. Or you can email me at audrey at rospod.org. We'd love to hear from you, and thanks for listening. The Harvard Center for Primary Care is sponsoring a conference on October 10th, 2017 in Boston entitled Primary Care in 2020, Future Challenges, Tips for Today. The conference aims to help leaders in primary care prepare for an uncertain future while still delivering high-quality patient care right now. Among many other distinguished leaders in primary care, Dr. Jeffrey Brenner, founder of the Camden Coalition and featured in Atul Gawande's famous Hotspotters article, will speak. Review system listeners can enter the code RADIO in all lowercase to receive a 15% discount on the registration fees for all of the various options. You can find a link to the registration form and agenda for the conference on our website, or you can go directly into the Harvard Center for Primary Care site at primarycare.hms.harvard.edu. That's primarycare.hms.harvard.edu. And enter the promo code RADIO.